And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Keenum's going to try to work the ball on the boundary. Keenum steps into it. Pass is caught. Diggs! Sideline! Touchdown! Unbelievable! Vikings win it! I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. I'm here so I won't get fined. Third down and 10. Push back to their own 45. Good protection. And the throw is a beauty of a ball. Jerry Judy. And Tonga Bailoa just laid it in there perfectly. Okay, here we go. With the first pick in the 2020 draft, the Cincinnati Bengals select Joe Burrow, quarterback. LSU. Two men, one Vikings fan, one Bills fan, coming to you live amidst a pandemic to bring you guys like sports. Hi, I'm Curtis Henry. I'm here with my co-host Michael Rose, and... We are bringing you a special episode of Guys Like Sports today. Today is our NFL Draft First Round Recap Podcast. I'm here with Mike Rose. Mike, tell me your initial thoughts on what we just witnessed play out over the course of the last four hours. Well, it was a quick draft. There was no hiccups with the uh, virtual setting. It was a weird draft, which I think we kind of both expected because we've kind of discussed every team's big board at a lot of these positions felt very different from the reports that came out. We saw that on full display tonight. And as a Vikings fan, it was a very good draft. I will definitely be talking about the Minnesota Vikings because I was nothing but impressed with the first round they were able to put together tonight. And we'll definitely be talking a little bit about teams that crushed it, teams that maybe had some questionable choices. And, I mean, our priority is going to be to break this thing down pick by pick. And really, from start to finish, the presentation from ESPN tonight I thought was phenomenal, working with what they had. The little still shots of Roger Goodell, kind of, they are kind of boring uh, with him announcing the picks and not walking out to actively being booed by you know, tens of thousands of people, but overall, I would say quality of this draft was 9 out of 10, and it was definitely something we're never going to forget uh, when all is said and done. And they definitely tried with the, uh, you know, Goodell. They had the fans, the super fans, they were calling them in the background on the little video feed, so you know, they gave it as good of a brunt as they could, given the circumstances. I think they did a really good job, uh, you know, putting together as high quality of a product as they could under these circumstances. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, jumping right in here, not surprisingly, first name off the board was Joe Burrow, quarterback, LSU. I don't think anyone had any reason to suspect that this was going to go differently. Earlier in the day, there were some reports out that Miami was allegedly trying to trade up for the number three pick while maintaining their number five pick. So they could subsequently trade picks three and five to Cincinnati so they could get pick one. I thought that was a load of garbage. I thought Cincinnati was locked in on Burrow all along. And uh, no surprises here. 
Yeah, I think we all kind of expected Joe Burrow to go pick one. Uh, we've we've talked a lot about Joe Burrow, what he brings to the Bengals. Obviously, uh, they needed a quarterback out there. They're hoping he's going to be their franchise guy, and he comes in off of arguably the best season ever by a college quarterback last season. And I'm sure Cincinnati, they got they got some pretty good weapons there in Cincinnati. I think you would agree, Tyler Boyd, A.J. Green, Joe Mixon is a pretty good nucleus to go off of, and they're going to need to add some offensive line pieces over the next couple of days of the draft to really kind of secure him. But overall, Bengals take Joe Burrow. I think uh, a pretty good situation for him to go into, and obviously the the pick that we all expected there. And I might disagree with you a little bit about a pretty good situation for him to go into because for my money right now, I'd rather be Tua Tagovailoa walking into uh, Miami's facilities for whenever the uh, season's looking like they're starting. But with Joe Burrow, he definitely has weapons at his disposal. It'll just be interesting to see how Cincinnati kind of reshapes that offensive line that was, for lack of a better word, just disgusting. It was atrocious last year. They're going to need to protect him, keep him upright, make sure he's their franchise guy, give him every chance to succeed. That's going to be the bottom line in Cincinnati. Moving on, pick two, another guy, no surprises. Do you have any more thoughts on Joe Burrow, or did we did we kind of beat that with a dead horse? Cause, uh, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think all I would say is that I think Cincinnati has better weapons than Miami, but I think Miami is a better run organization right now to walk into as a quarterback. I would agree, 100%. Uh, pick two, Chase Young. And this is a guy who, in our first episode, in the draft preview, I was really excited about. He was my water is wet pick as far as people who are good prospects. And I was just excited to see what he would become based on the enormous potential that's here with Chase Young. Thoughts? Yeah, when I look at Chase Young, he's he's one of three guys in this draft class that I looked at, and all three of those players on the defense side of the football just surefire, I don't think you could possibly go wrong taking this guy picks. Chase Young is going to walk into the league, be an instant threat on the edge as a pass rusher for the Redskins, who really, the Redskins have a lot of things wrong with them, organizationally, roster-wise. But right now, defensively, on the defensive line, the Redskins have a really good young nucleus with Chase Young, Montez Sweat, they have Deron Payne in there, Matt Ionondas, who's kind of emerging as a, as a quality young player in there for them. So they have some, some really high-quality players on the defensive line, which could really help elevate the rest of this uh, defensive unit because we know what a good pass rush can do for a defense. So I think overall you're going to add Chase Young into that mix. It's a great pick. I don't think you can go wrong with the guy. He's a, he's a Hall of Fame caliber player uh, when it's going to be all said and done. Love talking about Hall of Fame caliber players for gentlemen who have yet to take a snap in an NFL game, but you're absolutely right. That's the kind of talent that this guy is. And moving on, do we have any closing thoughts on Chase Young? I just feel like Ron Rivera got his guy here, and the front seven for Washington is quickly going to become what Ron Rivera likes as a defensive-minded head coach. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you go wrong there. There's not much to say about Chase Young because he's, he's just so good. We don't even need to go in depth. He's, he's just that good. All right, well, pick three, and really through three picks, the draft held form, which was positive uh, because typically, you know, the NFL draft is just wild. There were reports emerging that speculation among the media was just so off base with what was actually going to happen in this draft, and pick three kind of held form. Jeff Okuda, cornerback out of Ohio State. Interesting note, Okuda, Chase Young, Joe Burrow. First trio of former teammates 
to ever go one, two, three in the NFL draft. Uh, you remember Joe Burrow was, he started his collegiate career at Ohio state before a transfer to LSU. So interesting tidbit there, but Jeff Okuda, he, I, again, he's not chase young as far as the game breaker right out of the gate that Chase Young figures to be for Washington, but Jeff Okuda is a guy who slots in day one as a starter, and he hit the upside here is immense, I believe. Any thoughts on Okuda? I love Jeff Okuda. I'm actually going to disagree with the first thing you said. I think Jeff Okuda day one is as big of a, a you know, uh, addition to a defense as Chase Young is. I think Jeff Okuda is that good of a corner. I think he comes right in and is a premier lockdown man-to-man press corner in this league. I think it won't be before long until Jeffrey Okuda is among the 10, maybe even five best cornerbacks in all of football. I am super high on Jeffrey Okuda. I think this is a great pick for Detroit. And I actually venture to say that going from Darius Slay to Jeffrey Okuda is very quickly going to look like an upgrade for the Detroit Lions. You have all the potential in the world to be spot on with that. And, uh, for the Bills fans who might be listening to us, I think Okuda reminds me a lot of Tredavious White with the way he plays the game. Really physical, really good in man-to-man coverage. You can leave him on an island. He figures he's big enough at 6'1", 205. He can hang with the bigger receivers in the NFL and not really be a detriment if you put him on an island. So for my money, you, you could be right as far as the instant impact there. But I, I figure that with Okuda, it might take you know a year or two before he develops into in all pro, whereas Chase Young could be an all pro this year, in my opinion. But if you want to say they're both going to be all pros, I'm not going to. I'm I not think they could both be all pros this year. And, you know, just a, a great tidbit and one of my favorite tidbits about maybe any draft prospect uh, in this process that I heard about Jeffrey Okuda. Jeffrey Okuda last year committed zero defensive penalties. Not once was he flagged in, in coverage all year. And that's going against the best receivers, you know, in the country last year in college football in a year where it was often talked about this is arguably the best receiver class ever. And he was going out there matching up man-to-man every week against guys like that and just completely shutting them down. So I am very big on Jeffrey Okuda. He's the highest-ranked cornerback in the draft, and I think they said the last five years. I would have to fact-check that one to be sure. But, yeah, Jeffrey Okuda uh, I think is a absolute slam-dunk home run, grand slam pick for the Detroit Lions. I'm not that high on Okuda, but I'm not going to chastise you for that opinion. I think he's going to be very good for a long time in the National Football League. Moving on. So this draft had a similar arc to the 2019 NFL draft, where the first three picks, we kind of had a sense of what was going to happen, and it happened. And then pick four was a name that, well, projected a first-round pick, nobody really anticipated to come out of Goodell's mouth is in slot four. You remember last year that was Clellan Farrell going to the Las Vegas Raiders at the time, the Oakland Raiders. This year, Andrew Thomas was the name to come out of Goodell's mouth fourth overall. What are your thoughts on this, Michael? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Two years in a row now where the Giants have gone maybe a little against the grain, you know, taking a guy that many people had projected as a first-round pick but maybe not projected this high. Uh, last year taking quarterback Daniel Jones that last year for the most part I'd say it was positive returns on Daniel Jones the biggest thing that his problem was is that he had no time to sit in the pocket so what do you do you bring in a big offensive lineman and Andrew Thomas um, I think in terms of value at pick four uh, you could have done better I think there's some better players on the board at this point in the draft and maybe even some better tackles on the board but I think Andrew Thomas is an incredibly safe pick 
I think he's the type of guy who's going to be a steady hand on the offensive line for probably the next 10 years for the New York Giants. Um, I don't, I don't see a lot of downside with Andrew Thomas. I just think he's incredibly safe, high floor guy. And I, I don't see a super high ceiling, like maybe a uh, Mackay Becton, who we're going to talk about later, but I think he's a super high floor solid starter for, for a decade for the New York Giants. And that that's a pretty spot on analysis. I think that he's going to be solid. I don't think he has quite the upside as some guys like Mackay Becton, you mentioned, and Tristan Wirfs, who was also picked a little bit later on. I think, I mean, you just saw the videos that they were playing on ESPN tonight of Tristan Wirfs. This is a guy who 330. He's running a 485 40 yard dash. He was jumping out of swimming pools. He was benching for, uh, or excuse me, he was squatting 450. He, uh, he was setting powerlifting records at the University of Iowa. So Tristan Wirfs, to me, was the number one prospect at the offensive tackle position. And it was a lot based on the potential of what he could be based on his status as a freakish athlete. Andrew Thomas doesn't share that same status, but he also comes with less bust risk than perhaps a Tristan Wirfs or a Makai Becton, who you kind of draft based on the freakish athletic potential that we saw displayed at the combine. Yeah, I think Thomas is definitely the most technically sound alignment of the big four tackles we have at the top right now. I just think, like you said, you know, if you can develop a guy like Becton or Wirfs, their upside is a lot higher because those guys are, like you said, just freaky athletes where Thomas is just, he's, he's just going to be rock solid. I mean, that's really all I can say about him. He's, he's just as solid, consistent, high floor guy as you can get at the tackle position. Absolutely. You, uh, you ready to move on and talk quarterback? I'm ready to talk some quarterbacks. So off the board, five and six, we had two quarterbacks. We had Tua Tagovailoa, surprise to no one. And then we had Justin Herbert come off the board at number six to the Los Angeles Chargers, which was a little bit of a surprise. And uh, let's talk about Tua first. What were your thoughts here on the tank for Tua campaign, finally uh, paying dividends in Miami? Yeah, I mean, like you said, this is what it was all about, right? They started the year, it was tank for Tua. And, you know, Brian Flores did a good job building a culture. They won some more games than they thought they maybe planned to originally. But at the end of the day, they still got Tua. So, really, it was it was a plan that went correctly for Miami. I think Tua was both of our number one quarterbacks on the board when we talked uh, on the first episode of the podcast previewing the draft. And when I look at Tua, I see a guy who is incredibly accurate. He has a a better arm, I think, than Joe Burrow. He's a little more mobile, but I don't think either one's really terribly mobile. And when it comes down to it at the end of the day, it's just a matter of is Tua going to be able to stay healthy? And I think if Tua long-term is able to remain healthy, the Miami Dolphins have found their franchise quarterback. And I think it's interesting now that the only team in the AFC East that doesn't have a franchise quarterback is the New England Patriots, which is just – incredible irony and such a twist that the other three teams have found their guy right when New England loses their guy. Yeah, but uh, just closing up on two, I think uh, if as long as he can stay healthy, it's going to be a really good pick for Miami, and they got to be happy with uh, the results of all – you know, you don't tank. I think they said this on ESPN tonight during the broadcast. You don't tank and, you know, you don't trade away Laramie Tunsil and make a Fitzpatrick to turn around and take another offensive tackle at pick five. You did all this so you could get your franchise quarterback – and uh, I think that was just the obvious and clear choice here at the end of the day. I agree. And for me, Tua, when we talk about ranges of outcomes, I think low end range of his outcomes is somebody like Chad Pennington, 
who's just incredibly accurate and he was banged up throughout his career kind of had the same concerns coming out of Marshall that Tua had coming out of Alabama this year and uh, Pennington still had a really successful NFL career you know he had some strong seasons for the Dolphins and the Jets and Chad Pennington just was an incredibly accurate passer especially from the pocket and I so, think even a more recent example just to budget real quick would be almost like a, a Sam Bradford who also went really high in the draft and he had the bad shoulder injury his senior year at Oklahoma but he's a guy who played in the league for about six seven years was very accurate and he just wasn't really able to stay healthy so just for for someone who's maybe a little bit of a younger listener and didn't see Chad Pennington Sam Bradford a more recent example and Mike our minds are cut from the same cloth because my next name was going to be if you don't know who Chad Pennington is think maybe Sam Bradford <laughs> but uh phenomenal I think you're love that we're right on the there. same page we are absolutely on the same page and this is the first uh episode it should be noted this is the first episode where we didn't really discuss notes beforehand so we're just doing this off rip so Mike definitely seeing a little bit into my mind but yeah low end I think Chad Pennington Sam Bradford that's you know if the injuries catch up to him, he has a couple big injuries early on in his career and he never reaches his full potential. But I think high end, and this is a reach, so please don't call me out, but high end, I think of somebody like Drew Brees. And it's, it's like you read my mind because that's also the same ceiling. If I was going to make a comparison to a ceiling for two, it would absolutely be Drew Brees. Yeah, and it's just he profiles as somebody who's really accurate. He makes the right decisions. He has really good instincts if we're talking about intangible things uh he's not always going to be the most mobile guy he he has you know more speed and get up and go to him than Drew Brees I think ever has had but he's not a Michael Vick he's not a Lamar Jackson he's not of that mold so for Tua I think Drew Brees long term that's probably the highest of upsides for Tua Tagovailoa moving moving forward yeah, 100% agreed, and uh, I think with that, we can move on to Justin Herbert, who went number six. So I'm going to preface this. I'm going to let you go first by saying I have a lot of negative things to say about this pick. I think last year, pick four, and we talked about arc of the draft. Pick four was Clillan Farrell, and I hated it, and then pick six was Daniel Jones, and I hated it. <laughs> and this year, it was uh, pick four, Andrew Thomas, that wasn't a hate, but it was a surprise. And then pick six was Justin Herbert to Los Angeles, and I hated it. So let me hear your thoughts on Herbert, Michael. Justin Herbert as a player, you know I'm not very high on him, and I'm, I'm just not a big Justin Herbert guy. But I think Justin Herbert ends up in the best situation of any of these quarterbacks that went tonight, including Jordan Love and Green Bay, because I think Justin Herbert's going to walk in he has a really good coaching staff. I think Anthony Lynn's a really good coach. He's behind a good veteran in Tyrod Taylor who can teach him the game pretty well. Justin Herbert fits the mold of what Anthony Lynn wants in his offense. He's a, a little bit more of a mobile guy, which is what the Chargers have been saying all offseason is what they want at the quarterback position. And while Justin Herbert, he showed a lot of flashes at Oregon, and he never could just consistently put it together. And part of that could just be Oregon just not being that good. I mean, honestly, and I mean, I, I see a lot of red flags with Justin Herbert and I talked about a lot of them in episode one. So I'm just going to try and stay positive tonight. I think Herbert going to the Chargers, it's a good situation. He could probably get away with sitting for a year behind Tyrod Taylor. They should be a pretty good team this year. And he's going to walk in next year, probably as the starter. He's got a lot of good weapons around him. Hunter Henry, Keenan Allen, Austin Eckler, Mike Williams. And I, I think he's in a good position to succeed 
at least from a standpoint of the situation he goes to. And you know I'm big on situation being important for quarterbacks. You know, just to bring up, since you are a Bills fan, you know Josh Allen is a guy I don't like. But Josh Allen, through two years, has been relatively successful in the NFL because of the Bills and the good situation that they have put him in at this point in his career. And I think Justin Herbert, while he's not perfect, could fall a similar mold to what the Bills have been able to do with Allen. For me, Justin Herbert, when we talk about ranges of outcomes, I think his range. By the way, folks, you're going to hear ranges of outcomes a lot during this episode. Yeah, and that I'm a big range of outcomes guy, right? And part of why I love fantasy football, sports in general, is assessing statistics and assessing probability of things happening based on ranges of outcomes. And I think that we both should, before we go any further, acknowledge that for all 32 of the young men drafted this evening a they absolutely deserved to be drafted in the first round because they did enough to impress at least one gm in the national football league and b they all have talent that is enough to provide them with a very large range of outcomes for success so they could be busts they could be wildly successful they could be future hall of famers we just don't know on draft night so this whole this whole thing might be to some kind of a moot thing but it's still kind of important to see how teams address certain needs to see where uh, players landed versus expectations going in and to see what the next couple of days in the draft are going to, are, are going to pan out to be based on the new information we were allotted this evening. Anything to add on there, Mike? No, I think you pretty much covered it. All right. So with Justin Herbert, and we're going to talk ranges of outcomes, right? I don't know that his ceiling is that high. You know, I think not to salt wounds. I think, Upside, not to upside here, Kirk Cousins, you know, I I think gunslinger mentality. I think he's mobile. I think, you know, he's got potential if he gets into the right system. And we, we've seen with Lamar Jackson that if you can build the right system with the right skill players around your guy, their ranges of outcomes increase drastically. And as a guy who was high on Lamar Jackson coming out of the draft, I still never envisioned him winning an MVP in his second season as an NFL starter. So for Justin Herbert, I think upside right now, Kirk Cousins. I think downside, Ryan Leaf. (laughs) And for those of you who don't know, if you're a younger listener at home, uh, Ryan Leaf was one of two gentlemen considered to be the number one overall pick the same year that Peyton Manning was drafted. And Peyton Manning went number one. Ryan Leaf went number two. Also to the, the San Diego Chargers at the time. And Ryan Leaf was an atrocity and he had a horrendous NFL career, really never did anything of note other than going down as one of the league's biggest busts. So I don't think the same kind of pressure is on Herbert that was on Ryan Leaf. But for me, this is a guy who's not particularly accurate. I wasn't buying into the Herbert hype in our first podcast. I I said then what I'll say now, he's going in the top 10. He went in the top 10 at pick six. I'm not going to be a fan of him going in the top 10, which I'm not, especially at Los Angeles, who, while they present a good situation, I think their pick could have gone uh, to better use on a guy like Tristan Wirfs, maybe Isaiah Simmons, or if you want to get, you know, a little, a little bit farther down, a cornerback like CJ Henderson. So that that's kind of my take on Herbert. I don't know if you have any closing remarks before we move on. We're already running really long with this NFL draft recap episode. Uh, but not anyway. surprised. 
But yeah, uh, all I'll say is just when you look at the Chargers roster, they don't have a lot of needs besides quarterback. So I think you're just kind of in a spot. Justin Herbert at this point is just going to even just, you know, you talk about this range of outcomes. It opens your Super Bowl window up if he can come in and play. If he can beat Kirk Cousins, I think that roster is good enough to win a Super Bowl if he can just play Kirk Cousins level football. So yeah. I think, I think at this point, uh, that's just, that was the best move for the chargers to make. You know, you mentioned some other guys that are on the board there and I think those guys are all better players than Justin Herbert, but I don't know where they fit in on the LA chargers, which have one of the better rosters in all of football. in my opinion. Yeah. And one last note on Justin Herbert, the dude kind of looks like John Paul Jones for our bachelor listeners at home. I'm a huge bachelor guy. Take a gander, Justin Herbert, John Paul Jones of the NFL. We're moving on. Picks seven, eight, and nine. I kind of have the same notes for all three of them, so I would like to kind of group them together and and move along. Is that is that okay with you, or do you want to maybe go in on the Simmons pick? No, we can group them all together, I guess. Yeah. So we have three defensive players come off the board uh, right after Herbert. We had Derek Brown to Carolina at seven. We had Isaiah Simmons to the Cardinals at number eight. And we had C.J. Henderson to Jacksonville at number nine. And I think all three of those guys were number one at their respective positions uh, on the draft board, respectively. Except uh, for Henderson, Okuda. Oh, my mistake. I, I forgot Okuda existed. So uh, with, with the exception of Henderson, they were number one or uh, two at their respective positions, and they all fill a need for their respective teams. That's basically my feedback on each of those picks. I think Isaiah Simmons to the Cardinals was a blessing because – he was somebody I thought would probably go at pick three or pick four. So he shouldn't have been on the board for the Cardinals at pick eight. That might be a blessing in disguise. Do you got any further feedback on that group of picks? Yeah, I'll just breeze through the first two. Derek Brown, Isaiah Simmons, both really high level talents. Both are going to be impact defenders day one. Simmons is the third guy. I talked about my three can't miss studs in this draft. Simmons is the third guy for me. That's going to walk in and be an instant impact on day one. I'm kind of surprised Carolina passed on him with the, retirement of Luke Keekley. I thought he would have filled that role pretty nicely. Uh, Henderson for me, I think Henderson is a, a really good player. I think he'll come in. He'll, he'll start right away for a Jacksonville team that needs corners. My one takeaway on him would just be that I think the difference between CJ Henderson and cornerback number three, four, five, six, seven, eight is not that big of a gap where I would have used a top 10 pick on him. Yeah, I can agree with that. And for me, the Jaguars need someone. They needed someone opposite of is AJ Bouye still there? Can we get a fact check? Uh, no. So AJ Bouye, he's departed. Jalen Ramsey obviously got traded to Los Angeles. So they are hurting at the cornerback position, really across the defense, especially because Yannick Ngakwe, uh, he's still looking for a way out. And I think he's going to get traded on day two. They just couldn't find a first round trade partner. Bouye is a Bronco, by the way. Yeah, Bouye is uh, in Denver. I just Wikipedia'd uh, on my uh, setup here. So we got Bouye in Denver. And Jacksonville is hurting for corners, so C.J. Henderson kind of fills that role. After that, next two together, really too. Yeah, it really. We can talk about picks ten, eleven, and thirteen all together, right? Yeah. Because this was the run on the offensive tackles that I thought we were going to see, kind of at picks four, six, seven, eight instead of ten, eleven, thirteen. But we had Jedrick Wills come off the board to the Cleveland Browns at ten, Makai Becton, and Tristan Wharfs. Tristan Wirfs, excuse me, came off the board at pick 11 for the Jets with Becton and pick 13 for the Tampa Bay Bucks with Tristan Wirfs. And those are possibly 
two of the better athletes in this entire draft class at, at the offensive tackle position. And they're both guys who were projected to go in the top 10. They fell down the ladder just a little bit. Can you tell me about these three guys and who you think is going to have the biggest impact right away? All three of these guys are really good players, and all three of these guys fill big-time needs on their respective teams. Werfs uh, is going to fill that tackle hole that the Buccaneers had and protecting Tom Brady now. Willis is going to come – or, excuse me, Wills is going to come in and uh, protect Baker Mayfield right away, which was not going very well last year for the Browns. So that's a definite need for them. And then Becton, uh, the Jets' offensive line, was a tire fire last year. So Becton's going to come in right away and help protect Sam Darnold. Uh, all three of these guys have a pretty high upside. Like you said, all three of them were mocked among the top 10 picks uh, in different mock drafts, depending on where you looked. And really, like you said, Becton and Worfs are really good athletes, two of the better athletes in the class when you talk about in terms of their size. And if you look at Wills, he started for a couple years in Bama. And, you know, if you don't know about Alabama offensive linemen, they usually turn out pretty good. Those guys are well coached down there at Bama. They turn out really good linemen year after year. And they go against some of the best pass rushers in the country playing against uh, in the SEC. So Will should come in and be uh, – a, a, all three of these guys should be day one starters would be my guess. And they're all going to be pretty high-impact players. I, I really liked all four of these tackles at the top of the class. So I really don't have anything negative to say about anybody who wanted to take one of those four guys. I had a top three, and it was Werfs, Becton, and Wills in that order. And I thought Thomas was kind of half a tier below. And feel free to disagree. I just thought his upside was a little lesser than the other three. But as you said, all three players should step in. Obviously, offensive linemen don't always have the same recognition as skilled players do in an offense, but they're all going to be very important when you think about protecting the likes of Baker Mayfield, Sam Darnold, and Tom Brady. Speaking of Tom Brady, how great of a week is Tom Brady having in Tampa Bay? Tom like, Brady couldn't have had a better week, I don't think. He, he gets perhaps the most athletic offensive tackle to come out of the – the draft in the last decade to protect his blind side. He gets his old buddy Gronk back down there in Tampa Bay and he's been trespassing and he's been violating social distancing laws with little to no consequence all the time in Tampa Bay. So this guy just really, he's living the dream right now. amidst Tampa uh, Bay. He owns, he owns the city already. It is Tampa Bay, Florida, new name, put it on the board. We're moving forward because pick 12 was the first kind of what the hell pick of the draft and to the uh, Raiders and naturally it was the Las Vegas Raiders. You had some interesting thoughts and feelings about the number 12 pick. I'm going to let you take it away. Yeah. So if you're following us on Twitter, uh, we tweeted out my, my initial reaction because we were in a little bit of a zoom call kind of watching the draft together, uh, you know, got to practice our social distancing. And my initial reaction is Al Davis just, just sat up out of his grave undertaker style and, Clicked, clicked the dial into the league and made that pick to select Henry Rollins <laughs> for the Oakland Raiders. And I just, it's just remarkable that the Raiders continue to abide by these horrible tactics that have led to some really dreadful drafting over the last couple of years. You know, once upon a time, they took really fast wide receiver Darius Hayward Bay, number five overall in a great wide receiver draft class. And he was a disaster. Now I will say this. I'm not the highest guy on Henry Ruggs. Uh, you know, in the world, but he's better than Darius Hayward Bay because Darius Hayward Bay couldn't catch a football. He was just fast. Ruggs is fast with good hands. Now, uh, a stat that scares me a little bit about Henry Ruggs, you know, we talk about, you know, the great speed. He's a deep threat. He had 14 catches of 20 plus yards at Alabama this year. That is not 
not ideal for uh, your big play wide receiver, especially when the likes of Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb both had more 20-plus catch plays this season. So when I look at Ruggs, um, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what the Raiders do. They have a lot of fast guys, which is, I mean, Raiders us, Darren Waller, very fast tight end. You got Henry Ruggs, Tyrell Williams is kind of a little bit of a deep threat. I guess we're just going to let Derek Carr, you know, you know, run it with Josh Jacobs in the play action and throw it deep. I guess that's the plan in, in Las Vegas this year. And maybe Henry Ruggs being fast will help sell tickets if we're allowed to sell tickets this year. But I think Henry Ruggs is not close to Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb in terms of a complete wide receiver. And I think this pick was really just bad. I So I agree with your thoughts on the pick. I disagree with a little bit of the rationale you used because you mentioned that Ruggs only had 14 catches at 20-plus yards this year. You got to remember, Alabama was a stacked offense at the receiver position. He was playing behind Jerry Judy and Devontae Smith. He isn't the number one receiver in that offense, clearly. Somehow he gets drafted ahead of Judy, which is... Let's see, kind of make my point. If he's behind Jerry Judy on that chart, why are we taking him ahead of Jerry Judy? Correct, and this is why I'm angry about it. So the statistical limitations I don't think reflect his actual ability as much as how crowded that wide receiver room was at Alabama, and I don't know if you think that's fair or not, but he isn't the complete receiver that Jerry Judy or CD lamb are. And it's not close. It isn't close. Like this was one, a Jerry Judy, one B CD lamb, rank them how you want. And then a distant third and not necessarily third, because I know you had Brandon. Ayuk as your third wide receiver overall, a distant third would be Henry Ruggs because his upside is Deshaun Jackson. Right. And Jerry Judy, I think his upside is kind of someone like AJ green and CD lambs upside is somebody like Julio Jones. So the Oakland or Las Vegas Raiders, excuse me, they have Tyrell Williams opposite Henry Ruggs. Tyrell Williams is not a complete wide receiver. Okay. He does a lot of things. Well, Tyrell Williams, good wide receiver too, but he is not a complete wide receiver and neither is Henry Ruggs. So the Las Vegas Raiders just shot themselves in the foot by falling in love with speed, which is something they've been doing for 20 years and haven't learned a goddamn thing. So this, to me, I you guys were all streaming the draft on YouTube TV, uh, Yahoo Sports, different, different plugs there. I had live cable, so I was about 15 seconds ahead of everybody as far as the picks. Y'all were getting mad at me as they were coming in. When Henry Ruggs name popped up on my screen, I yelled very distinctly. It was a piercing scream. Because I was just so enraged and because I knew it was going to alter the landing spots for Jerry, Judy, and C.D. Lamb, and it did. And it's going to affect fantasy football, as we know, and I'm a big, big fantasy football guy. So the Raiders just botched this on a lot of levels, I think. Henry Ruggs, not going to be a bad NFL player, but you could have done better. They ended up getting a guy who's Deshaun Jackson or Hollywood Brown when they could have had – Julio Jones or AJ Green. And I will, I, I have the official stat on this. So this, this actually makes it sound even worse because I gave him more credit than he deserved. So okay. Henry Ruggs had 12 receptions of 20 plus yards downfield in his entire college career. So that's not just from this year. That's okay. His entire yeah. college career. 11 wide receivers in this draft class had more this year alone. And so the uh, Alabama numbers, just for some perspective, Devontae Smith this year had 10 such catches. Jerry Judy had nine. Jalen Waddle, who barely got on the field, had five. Henry Ruggs had four. So I think if you're, you're banking on this guy because he's fast to be a deep threat, but the reality is 
he's not that good of a deep threat. And so I just don't really understand the rationale at all because he doesn't have – he's not as good a route runner as the other guys, and he's not even as good of a deep threat as the other guys. It just makes no sense to me. He's I don't fast. know what you possibly see in Henry Ruggs besides the fact that he is fast. This is a terrible pick by the Las Vegas Raiders. Just, they completely botch it. And you know what? I, I will just finish it off by one positive thing. We buried the Vegas Raiders for their draft last year, and they definitely made some questionable picks throughout the draft last year, but they had arguably the best draft of anybody last year overall as a whole. So they have time to correct this and make some good picks in the next couple of days, but they absolutely blew it at pick number 12, in my opinion. And I think John Gruden is doing an okay job. Him and Mike Mayock, they're doing an okay job at building a culture there. They're, they're weeding out some guys that, you know, don't fit the brand, but – this was just a questionable decision. They had two first-round picks, and I felt like they blew both of them. We'll move on. We'll get to them later. Real quick, any notes on Javon Kinlaw at, at 14 before we get to uh, 15, 16, 17? He's DeForest Buckner, except he costs $20 million less. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and the 49ers, they, they trade uh, Buckner for the 13 overall pick. They then trade down with Tampa Bay, who traded up to the 13 slot to select Tristan Wirfs. And then they got their guy, Javon Kinlaw, who should slot in seamlessly among that defensive line. And really, he should be an instant impact guy. So picks 15, 16, 17. We're going to brush right over A.J. Terrell. A.J. Terrell got drafted 16th overall to Atlanta. He figures to slot in as a, a day one starter for them. He's out of Clemson. My, my takeaway from A.J. Terrell was on his main player profile, <laughs> they had like three little bits of information. One of them was A.J. Terrell. 29-1 record as a starter at Clemson. And that confused the hell out of me. I was like, does ESPN have so little information on this guy that they used a team record as a stat to attribute to his success as a, as a prospect? Like, A.J. Terrell, I don't think he's that good. I think he moved up the draft board a lot based on the Clemson brand. But <laughs> ESPN just has to do better than listing team record under a quarterback's main profile stats because that has there's literally no correlation. Yeah, I, I don't think AJ Terrell's a bad player. I just think there's and we're gonna get to a couple more of them. A lot of corners were overvalued in this draft in a draft where corner was deep, but there wasn't a lot of guys I would attribute first round grades to. I think the only guys I would get first round grades to are probably Okuda and maybe Henderson, although I'm kind of borderline on Henderson too. So I think Terrell's a nice player. I just don't think it's good value at the 16th pick. I think there's a third corner I would throw in that first round grade mix, but yeah, Henderson and Okuda for sure were the first rounders. And then we had a lot of guy on this, guys on the second round bubble and, and Terrell definitely fit that mold. We're done with AJ Terrell. Big names off the board at 15 and 17. Jerry Judy and C.D. Lamb. Jerry Judy heading to Denver. C.D. Lamb heading to Dallas. What do you make of this, Michael? Well, Jerry Judy, I mean, I think everyone in America who did a mock draft mocked the Broncos taking a wide receiver because if anyone can try and come up with the number two wide receiver on Denver Broncos as it stands right now next to Corlin Sutton, if you even come up with the name, it's probably not very good. They definitely need a wide receiver. So Jerry Judy is going to slot in. He, in my opinion, anyways, will eventually be the number one wide receiver in Denver, but at least for this upcoming year, he'll slot in as the number two next to Corwin Sutton. He'll have an instant impact. He's as NFL ready as any receiver that I've looked at over the last five drafts that I've looked at in depth. So Jerry Judy, instant impact right away. CeeDee Lamb, who is my number one receiver on my board personally, Boomer Sooner. He's going to Dallas. It's an interesting fit because Dallas is pretty – 
pretty good at wide receiver already. You got Amari Cooper, you got Michael Gallup there, and it should theoretically be a run-heavy offense when you have Ezekiel Elliott and you've paid Ezekiel Elliott and you haven't paid your quarterback. But meanwhile, they're probably going to be pass-heavy anyways, just completely go against the logic of how they spend their money. And so they add another wide receiver to the mix. And CeeDee Lamb's going to come in, and I assume he would play the slot uh, with this receiving core. And putting CeeDee Lamb in the slot is going to be an absolute mismatch nightmare. He's as good as any wide receiver after the catch that, truthfully, I've ever seen in my life of my 22 years on this earth and my 13 years of watching football. CeeDee Lamb is good as it gets after the catch. And he should slot right in, have a huge impact in Dallas right away. I think he, in my opinion anyways, eventually he will be the number one in Dallas as well. And they just paid Amari Cooper a whole lot of money. But I think for my money, CeeDee Lamb is the more talented of the two. And he's definitely more talented than Michael Gallup, who they drafted a couple years ago. And Gallup's progressed really nicely, and he had a really good season last year. So it's interesting that Dallas would go this direction when they have some other needs. But I think the value of how good a player CeeDee Lamb is at the 17th pick, which is too good to pass up for, for Jerry Jones. And we know Jerry Jones loves a good star player. Absolutely. And how deep of a draft class is it that two wide receivers who I believe are genuinely top five talents uh, on the board fell to 15 and 17? And it wasn't like teams were making obvious gaffes. It wasn't like there was 14 Henry Sides Ruggs. for the Raiders. Yeah, there wasn't 14 Henry Ruggs off the board in front of these guys that you couldn't justify. So this, da- this draft class is really deep, and it's something we knew going in, but I think it's something that we saw played out even more tonight. And Jerry Judy, I love him in Denver. I think Drew Locke is one of the happiest guys in America right now because alongside – I don't think we talked enough about how good Denver's offense could be this year. Because they added Melvin Gordon. They have Philip Lindsay. They have Royce Freeman, who have been productive backs. So they're deep at running back. They have Cortland Sutton. They now have Jerry Judy. And they have Noah Font at tight end. And Noah Font showed a lot of flashes last year as being, I'm not going to say Kelsey upside, not anything that crazy, but being cut from the same athletic cloth as a tight end like Travis Kelsey. So Denver's skill position group right now might be top five in the league. And you look at Dallas, their skill position group is definitely top five in the league when you consider they just added CeeDee Lamb. I think this does two things for Dallas. One, it gives Dak Prescott zero excuses not to succeed. If they're going to bring him in one-year trial basis when they still haven't signed him, he's franchised, they bring him in for a year. He has all the weapons in the world. If he's not, you know, all pro caliber, maybe they have a reason not to sign him to a guard. they got to make the playoffs. Yeah, they have to they at have least to. make the playoffs based on the, the weapons that are in this offense. They need to be a lot more consistent than the team that we saw a year ago. And so, one, it gets rid of any excuse that Dak Prescott has ever had, right? And I don't think there was one last year because he still put up 5,000 yards. As a Dak Prescott owner uh Dynasty Fantasy Football, I could not be happier about this. But moving on, CeeDee Lamb, the second part of this is that it makes Amari Cooper expendable. So if the Amari Cooper project – doesn't pan out and he starts looking like a bad investment, Dallas can trade him because I think he's a very tradable asset, even with a massive contract. And even if it only means getting a third or a fourth round pick back, they still have CD lamb. They still have Michael Gallup. They're going to be okay at the wide receiver position. So maybe they can even trade Amari Cooper for a position player to address a need on defense. Maybe they could use some of that money to pay Dak Prescott for crazy. 
Yeah, so I think it makes Amari Cooper expendable in Dallas because they now have two number one wide receivers. I think both of them, if you ask me today, CeeDee Lamb and Amari Cooper are both top 15 wide receivers in the, in the uh, National Football League. We're going to move on just for the sake of time because we have to. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, I, I said all I need to say on those guys. Yeah, we're, we're already running really long. This is going to be a sloppy episode. <laughs> so 18, Austin Jackson flies off the board to Miami. The fifth tackle to come off the board, I thought it was going to be Isaiah Wilson. He did go in the first round, but it ended up being Austin Jackson out of USC. What do you got on this pick? Anything? Uh, I'm just going to make it real easy. Miami needed a tackle, and they said, who's the next tackle on our board after the first four? And that's who they took. That, that's really all this pick was to me. Correct. And so Tua, he's got an offensive lineman. I think this year it's going to be Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, running the show, at least to start. So Austin Jackson should help out the cause on what really should be a much more competitive Miami Dolphins team. And uh, 19, we have more of the Raiders being the Raiders. So Damon Arnett, let me tell you, Michael, I had a top 50 that I was kind of using. I ranked the top 50 guys on my board. And I was using that for my round one mocks. Damon Arnett was not on that list. So when his name came off the board at 19, I was shocked. What do you got for me? I like this pick a lot more than you do. We kind of discussed it a little bit when we were watching the draft live. Damon Arnett, now I'll say it again. Damon Arnett should not be a first-round pick. I'm not going to defend taking him in the first round. Damon Arnett, the player, however, I think – there's there's some upside with this guy. You know, a fun stat for you, Curtis. Damon Arnett last year in one-on-one coverage gave up zero touchdowns, not a single one. I have no idea how Ohio State did not make it to the national championship game, by the way, with Chase Young, Jeffrey Okuda, and Damon Arnett on their defense. But Damon Arnett is a guy who got overshadowed a lot by Okuda, but he's a really talented corner in his own right. He's another man-to-man guy. He's another Ohio State corner. We know how successful all those guys are in the league. And I think... Oakland had a pressing need at corner, and it's one of those things where, you know, we talked about a couple times already, the corner board after the top two was such a mess that I think every single one of these teams had a different order. So to the Raiders, John Gruden's probably sitting there like, yes, we got our guy, Damon Arnett, because he was probably like the number three corner on their board. I had, I really would not right. even question that if that was the case. And I bet you all of these teams that took corners tonight were probably thrilled because they probably all had these guys – is the number three or four corner on their board, and they just happened to, to go in the order that they did just based on where these teams were picking. Yeah, and for context, six corners came off the board. I didn't know if you had counted them out yet. Uh, so, Damon Arnett, he was the fourth of the bunch after Terrell, uh, Henderson, and Okuda. For me, this was just interesting because I thought Jeff Gladney, and we'll talk a lot more about Jeff Gladney later on, he I he kind of seemed like the better corner prospect to me at this point in the draft. And uh Oakland or Las Vegas, take a shot, take a shot every time we call Las Vegas Oakland tonight, because that's at least the fourth time this podcast. But Las Vegas, again, the talents there, the upsides there. You made the argument for Damon Arnett as soon as he came off the board, but I just don't like it, you know? And I I it, it's not a Raiders bias. I have nothing against John Gruden Mayock, what they're doing out there. It was just, you could have done better, I thought. So we'll see how it pans out again, as, as we mentioned earlier on. Large ranges of outcomes. And uh, real quick, can we skip kind of over Clavon Chason? No disrespect to him, but just for the sake of time, I think that uh, Chason to the Jags 
filled the need, and it was kind of an under. I really pick. don't like Jason, so I kind of want to go in on the spec. All right, go go in on the Jags. Uh, so I think Jason had no business going in the first round, and honestly, if you look at his overall production, he just didn't really produce at a, a level worthy of a first-round player in the NFL draft. I think the Jaguars big-time reached because they're worried that they're going to have to trade Yannick Ngakwe tomorrow, and they won't have anybody to play defensive line for them. So they're like, we got to get somebody with the second first-round pick. But Jason really, to me, is a guy who was a big-time reach. I think he's a, a freaky athlete, and I can see the upside, but I think he's more of a project at this point. He, he hasn't produced so far, and he was on a really good LSU defense last year and still really didn't produce at the level you would expect. So I think this is a bit of a reach, and I think uh, Jacksonville, Jacksonville tonight has probably one of the lowest grades of, of any team that drafted tonight in my book. That's fair enough. And again, it's tough to grade grade draft picks without any on-field performance uh, in the National Football League. But Clavon Chason, eh, I was underwhelmed. I didn't hate it like I hated the Raiders picks. I just, it, it was vanilla. Uh, moving forward, we had a couple wide receivers fly off the board. And I think this is where our discussion might get a little bit spicy. So we're going to talk about Jalen Rager. And we're only going to talk about Jalen Rager for right now. Who came off the board at 21 to the Philadelphia Eagles. He's bad fast. He profiles a lot like Henry Ruggs. And you and I both kind of thought Philly was the ideal landing spot for Ruggs because they know how to use guys like Deshaun Jackson. When Ruggs was off the board before Philly had the opportunity to pick, it felt like they went with the next best thing, which was Jalen Rager, who is essentially diet Henry Ruggs. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up pretty well. I, I will say I think Rager is a little bit better of a, a route runner at this point than Ruggs, and I think he can uh, work the underneath game a little bit better, and he's probably a better deep start than Henry Ruggs too. I bet you he had more 20-plus yard catchers than Henry Ruggs last year, and his quarterback was not to a tug of Iloa. It was some bum that played for TCU who wasn't very good. No disrespect to TCU. But their quarterback situation was a disaster last year. Uh, <laughs> no. Jaylen- just real quick, no disrespect, but I'm going to have some disrespectful shit come out of my mouth. Yeah, no disrespect, but the TCU quarterback sucked. So, <laughs> Jalen uh, coming into this draft, he had by far the highest percentage of uncatchable passes among these wide receivers. Jalen Rieger last year on his targets, 40% of them were uncatchable. I mean, just think, almost almost half of the balls thrown to Jalen Rieger last year were not catchable. So, the fact that he produced it all is remarkable, really, because he only had 50% of them that he could do anything with. He's a good return guy as well, so he should step in and be uh, a special teams guy for the Eagles as a return man. And like you said, I mean, you compare him to Henry Ruggs and Deshaun Jackson, I mean, that's the mold he's going to fill. And Deshaun Jackson couldn't stay healthy for more than about five seconds last year for the Eagles. So I think they look at Rager and say he's going to fill Deshaun Jackson's role when Deshaun Jackson inevitably gets hurt. Yeah, that's fair. And I think Rager – he at the combine ran a four four, and I've never seen a receiver get so pissed off at themselves for running a four four. All right, a four four is a good time. You're talking about elite speed if you're running a four four, right? Four three is where it gets we get into the upper echelons of guys, the Deshaun Jacksons of the world. Uh, four two, that's record setting pace. That's Bo Jackson. So. 4-4 is an elite NFL speed, and this guy ran a 4-4, but him and Henry Ruggs both coming into the combine were mentioned as guys who could potentially break John Ross's combine record of a 4-2-240. And he ran a 4-4, and he was pissed. 
And he looks like a guy who knew he could do better than that. So I think we know Jalen Rager is bad fast. And I think his situation in Philly is going to be a lot better than Ruggs' situation in Oakland based on quarterback play and the, uh, the scheme around them. So that's just my final take on Rager. Do you got anything else before we move on? Uh, just to note, there's not a single person who watched a single game of Jalen Rager at any point in his college career who thinks he runs a 4-4. That, that that number almost seemed impossible to me when I saw it pop up on the screen. It, it, he plays so much faster than that that I just I took zero stock into that 40 time. Yeah, and I don't know if he was under the weather at the combine. You know, there could have been outside influencing factors that we didn't know, but or, or perhaps a nagging injury. But Rager, he's definitely a guy who is going to make some noise in the NFL based on how he profiles as a speed demon. So and and for the for the record, his first pass in the combine was a four four seven, and then he ran a four four one. So when he ran that four four seven, that was about two tenths slower than most people expected him to run, and he was livid. Like I alluded to, he I'd never seen a player at the combine more upset with themselves than Jalen Rager was running the forty. Pick twenty two, Justin Jefferson. And I'm gonna go on a rant because Justin Jefferson, he was the number. He was the co-number three on my big board with, with Henry Ruggs. We talked badly about Henry Ruggs. Really, there's nothing wrong about Ruggs going in the first round. Just him going ahead of Judy and CeeDee Lamb was absolutely asinine. But Jefferson was kind of co-number three for me. I thought he was going to go to 15 to Denver. So really, him falling to 22, he probably shouldn't have been on the board. And Minnesota got a really good player. Justin Jefferson gets drafted to Minnesota. And Mike Rose at pick 22, I've never seen the guy look more defeated. Like, he looked like he just lost it all on a, a, a bet in March Madness. Like, he was a defeated gambling addict who would never be able to bounce back from this. And then, just like the gambling addict that Mike Rose is, he bounced back before the Vikings were on the clock again at 25. So within a span of three picks, Mike Rose had said, Justin Jefferson is garbage. This is the worst pick we could have made. I'm upset. That mentality to, I'm on board with Justin Jefferson by pick 25. And it was just an absolutely absurd turnaround. And I told him when I saw Justin Jefferson get drafted that he was going to be fine with it. And after he was upset and ranted about it for a short period of time, I said, in the future, when he pans out, you're not allowed to be happy about anything that this guy does on the field for the Minnesota Vikings, period. All right, so let me go in. I'm going to give my full explanation on this. So first, we need contact. CeeDee Lamb was falling down the draft. And if you don't know, I'm a huge Oklahoma football fan. So CeeDee Lamb is not only one of my favorite players, but he was also my number one wide receiver on my big board. The Vikings have a clear need a wide receiver. I had heard some rumblings they were thinking about trading up. So when they didn't trade up for CeeDee Lamb, I was already a little disappointed. Secondly, on Justin Jefferson, he's a guy, and Curtis, we've, we've talked a lot throughout this draft process because we talk quite often about our NFL you know, opinions and our sports opinions in general. And you know Justin Jefferson's a guy I've, I've bounced all over the place. Justin Jefferson at the Combine, he rolls all the way up to third on my board. Then at one point, I think he was like my seventh wide receiver. And then I kind of settled him in at like number four going towards the NFL draft. I just didn't know where to place him because he's an elite slot receiver. And I don't really think you could argue against it. He's an elite slot receiver. He, he proved that at LSU this past year. I have big-time concerns about his ability to play outside and win against you know top-level corners. And 
for the Vikings specifically, I think they needed a guy who could win on the outside with the loss of Stefan Diggs and with Adam Thielen starting to get up there in age. I would have liked a guy who could who could win at all levels of the field. However, Justin Jefferson is a very talented player. He produced a ton, uh, as pretty much everyone did at LSU last year. I think he'll he'll have a nice rookie season with the Vikings. Uh, I think that he's in a good situation in terms of the offense with, with Minnesota. He's going to step right in as a starter because there's absolutely no way he's going to get beat out by Tajay Sharp or B.C. Johnson on that depth chart. So overall, not a bad pick by the Vikings. It was just Jefferson was a tricky guy for me because if you watch his 2018 tape, he was he was just not good on when he had to play on the outside. And so last year he went to a, a primary slot role, and he excelled, obviously, in a fantastic season for LSU. And then he shined at the Combine. And he rose up some draft boards. And it was just one of those things where I had kind of, in my mind, just assumed he was going to be off the board. So I had not mentally prepared myself for the possibility of Justin Jefferson actually being a Viking. And the way the wide receivers went tonight was kind of a little strange, just the order they went in and such. So uh, it just kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. But overall, I'm satisfied with the Justin Jefferson pick. But I really would have preferred if they traded up for C.D. Lamb. When Justin Jefferson came off the board, when I saw the pick is in, I was just so happy that with the 22nd overall pick in the NFL draft, the Buffalo Bills selected Stephon Diggs because I think Stephon Diggs is going to be a lot better than Justin Jefferson for the next two to three years. And whether or not Jefferson develops into a guy with a similar skill set as Stephon Diggs is going to be, is yet to be seen. I think they profile kind of similarly with uh, Diggs's route running ability. Jefferson shares some of that. They both are able to make spectacular catches if you watch the film, but Jefferson just hasn't yet proven that he can play outside in the same manner that Diggs can. And as long as Jefferson is in Minnesota, that's going to be the comparison because Diggs got, you know, dumped for that 22nd overall pick in Jefferson is his de facto replacement. Yeah, and the Vikings also got a couple other picks in that, that trade. And I will also say that just given the Vikings cap situation, I'll take Justin Jefferson right now over Stephon Diggs because, quite frankly, the Vikings can't afford Stephon Diggs at this point. So, But you know what would have been an ideal scenario is having Stephon Diggs and Justin Jefferson if they could have gotten rid of Adam Thielen. That would have been my preferred scenario. But we've talked about Stephon Diggs. He didn't really want to be there, so it is what it is. Uh, I think, like you said, though, Jefferson is kind of a similar player to Diggs. Uh, it's just a matter of – and you know what? Coming out into the draft, they're very similar if you look at Diggs's what he profiled as when he came out of the draft. And I think Diggs was able to develop that – uh, ability to play on the outside and so who knows maybe Justin Jefferson you know he's in the same situation essentially in Minnesota maybe he can develop that ability as well I will keep my finger crossed on that one for sure and we're gonna jump ahead here uh we gotta keep it moving forward pick 23 Kenneth Murray to the Los Angeles Chargers and what I want to talk about here is the fact that I had LA trading up into the end of the first round which they did here at pick 23 they swapped with New England they gave up a second and a third round pick to get up to pick 23 they drafted Kenneth Murray who I think we both agree is going to be a good linebacker in the NFL what the Chargers could have done is trade up to the same spot draft Jordan Love and then use that number six overall pick to trade down and accrue more assets or take a surefire stud who was on the board at that point because Tristan Wirfs, Makai Becton, I mean, those are guys that were still on the board. Isaiah Simmons even. I mean, and, really could have went Simmons and Love and instead they went Herbert and Murray. Yeah, and I think that the Simmons and Love combination would be 
way higher up on my rankings, especially considering what they got gave up. And when you consider that they could have potentially traded down and still got Simmons because he didn't get traded until pick eight. So if they traded down and Carolina maybe wanted to make sure they got their hands on Derek Brown, like we, this is all speculation. I just think that the Chargers could have done better tonight. And, and that's kind of my my take on their performance. What would you think of the pick 23? I really like Kenneth Murray. Like I said, I'm an Oklahoma fan. I watched a lot of Kenneth Murray. He Boomer. Was, without a doubt, he was the best player on that defense every single year that he was there. And he he's just – he's all over the field. He can play sideline to sideline. Uh, the one thing you got to worry about with Kenneth Murray is not great in coverage, and that's going to be something he has to work on the next level. But in terms of playing the run, he's going to be an absolute fiend in stopping the run for the Chargers defense, and he should step right in and have a big impact in that area. Um, and just kind of going off what you were just talking about, I I guess I think I like the Simmons-Love combination a little bit more. Um, I guess it's just a matter of the fact that I don't like Jordan Love or Justin Herbert. So I just don't think there's really a good outcome if you're going home with one of those guys at the end of the day. But Kenneth Murray, I think he's a good player. He should help the Chargers immediately. But he's he's basically one half of what Isaiah Simmons could do. Isaiah Simmons can play the run as well as Kenneth Murray can, except he's also an elite coverage guy. Kenneth Murray's an elite run stopper, but he cannot cover anywhere close to the level Isaiah Simmons got. Yeah, spot on. That pretty much sums it up. And uh, we need to keep moving. We need to keep pressing onward with these final eight picks. I think we're going to kind of gloss over a couple of them. Cesar Ruiz at 24, solid pick for the Saints. A little bit underwhelming. Fills a need. You look at 29, Isaiah Wilson of the Titans. He was a guy who I thought could have gone earlier, maybe 18 to the Dolphins. He's going to be a good fill-in for the Tennessee Titans. 27, you have Jordan Brooks. I'm kind of jumping around so we can get to the last two or three guys that we really want to talk about here. I think Mike would probably share the same short list. I would say there's five guys left that I really want to talk about. Jordan Brooks, he is a Pete Carroll player, and he's going to slot in well in Seattle at 27. And he's a tackling machine, high motor. Uh, maybe not the best linebacker that was available there on the board, considering Patrick Queen went off the board with the next pick to Baltimore. but Jordan Brooks should be a good fit in Seattle. And Noah, God help me with this last name. Noah Igbenagany, I think is his last name. Noah Igbenagany went pick three to Miami. And that was a little questionable considering their depth at the quarterback position between Byron Jones and Xavier Howard. So interesting to see him slot in there at the nickel position. We thought, I think both of us agreed that pick 30. It's pronounced Igbin. Ogani, Igbingogani. Igbin, I can't, I can't do it. We're just going to call him he's, Noah. He's the son of two Olympic triath athletes, though. I thought that was an interesting note. I had no idea of that until tonight, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, so picks, picks 24 with Cesar Ruiz, pick 27 with Jordan Brooks, pick 29 with Isaiah Wilson, and pick 30 with our friend Noah. I think we both kind of shared the opinion that they were solid, but not particularly noteworthy. Yeah, I just want to touch on all of them real quick. Uh, Cesar Ruiz, I don't like taking interior offensive lineman this earlier, but he'll be a good player. He should start almost immediately for the Saints. Brooks is a poor man's kind of Murray, so Pete Carroll will find a way to use him. He he profiles me as a guy who's going to have a big impact on special teams early and eventually develop into maybe a Bobby Wagner replacement. Who knows? Uh, Isaiah Wilson should slide right in and eventually replace Jack Conklin, who the Titans lost in free agency. And uh, our boy Noah, who I'm just – I gave up on his last name as well. Uh, you know – 
another one of those corners who I think got overdrafted a little bit, but uh, played at Auburn. He played against a lot of good receivers in the SEC. Solid guy, but he, he I mean, he's going to be a nickel corner for Miami with Jones and Howard there, and I just think uh, they had some bigger, more pressing needs in Miami at that pick, but they go yeah. with him. Yeah, and, and drafting a nickel corner in the first round definitely doesn't scream prioritizing the right things if you're a roster that has as many holes as Miami. But I, can, I think we can both agree that the Dolphins did improve significantly tonight with their three picks. Jumping in pick 25, this is where the fun starts. Brandon Ayuk to San Francisco. I thought this was a match made in heaven. Period. Brandon Ayuk, listen, I'm just going to say, the San Francisco 49ers receiving core is going to lead the league in uh, forced broken tackles or forced missed tackles, however you want to phrase that. Between Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, you can't tackle these guys. These guys are unbelievable at making guys miss. And, I mean, like you said, it's just a match made in heaven going to a Shanahan offense where he loves to put guys, you know, all over the place and motion them and, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that they do in San Francisco. And Ayuk's going to slot right in, take over as the number two wide receiver next to Debo Samuel. Still got George Kittle there, obviously. And the Niners are going to have a really strong offense again this year. And Ayuk is a guy I was uh, very high on, a guy I liked a lot. And he should come right in and be a – day one starter and a, a very quality player for this Niners team. I agree. And Brandon Ayuk, you think with the departure of Emmanuel Sanders to New Orleans, uh, they, they traded for Sanders last year. He was kind of a one-year rental for them. Ayuk kind of profiles uh, among the same vein. He's a much younger guy, obviously. And he, he, I think he's more athletic. You look at his wingspan. We both made the same comment about his wingspan being the same is Kelvin Johnson, despite him being about four inches shorter. Yeah, so that's, he's, he's six feet tall. His wingspan is one one inch shorter than Kelvin Johnson's or whatever it was. So, I mean, that's just uh, absolutely nuts. Yeah, so he's a physical freak. He's going to do some things right out of the gate. I think he's going to be, if you're a fantasy footballer, pump the brakes a little bit on his uh, his initial outlook in, in Dynasty and Redraft Leagues just because he is going to slot in behind Debo Samuel and George Kittle. That was my initial takeaway for, for most of the receivers who came off the board tonight. Unfortunately, they could have gone to better landing spots for immediate Henry Ruggs fantasy. is going to be a number one receiver right away, though, baby. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that Ruggs is going to be ahead of Tyrell Williams in that chain of uh, command. And even if he is, I still think Darren Waller is ahead of them both. So, Valid. Not, so not disagreeing with any of this. Yeah, so for my liking, Ayuk, as far as a logistics NFL standpoint, match made in heaven. He's going to do good things. As far as a year one outlook, maybe he catches 50, 60 balls. Maybe I like gets, him more than you do in year one. I, maybe he I gets 700 yards and five touchdowns. I just – I think Debo takes a step forward. George Kittle continues to be the best tight end of the game. And Ayuk kind of – you know, falls to that third fiddle, at least in year one. I, I think long-term, I think his ceiling might be higher than Debo Samuels, but they are very similar players. Correct. Agree, okay. agree, agree across the board. Pick 26. I like when we agree. We're on the same page. Pick 26. My favorite pick of the draft. <laughs> As a Vikings fan, favorite pick of the draft. If you're Aaron Rodgers, least favorite pick of the draft. Jordan Love, the Packers traded up to draft a backup quarterback for Aaron Rodgers, who probably, with the, with the recent revelation that quarterbacks can play into their 40s at an elite level, looking at Drew Brees, looking at Brady, Rodgers probably has five good years left in him. So Jordan Love 
comes off the board. For Jordan Love, this is an ideal situation. I just think that the Packers could have done a lot, a lot of better things with this pick. Well, I think my favorite anecdote of the night is that this is the first skill position player that the Packers have taken in the first round of the NFL draft since Aaron Rodgers in, in 2005, which just – it sounds so ridiculous that it shouldn't even be true. The fact that they've not once – gone out and decided to add a weapon for Aaron Rodgers, which I think is great as a Vikings fan. But as a Packers fan, you just have to wonder, what are they thinking? And I think this is interesting because you got to remember, this is a new regime in Green Bay. So the new regime took over last year, and in year two already, they've identified their quarterback of the future. So, I mean, I know we're talking about Aaron Rodgers has five good years left. I just am kind of wondering, are those five good years going to be in Green Bay? Because yeah. I think – Especially in today's day and age, you know, back in 2005 with Aaron Rodgers, you could sit a quarterback for a couple years, and that was kind of the expected norm. You can't draft a guy, especially a quarterback, in the first round and sit him on the bench for three, four years and get away with it in today's NFL. I mean, and especially at some point, in four years, five years, his contract's going to be up. I mean, what are you yep. going to do? You're not going to pay two guys 20-plus million dollars and sit one of them on the bench. So I just think this is uh, this could maybe be a sign of where the Packers thinks – Things are heading, you know, they got demolished last year in the NFC championship game. And maybe, you know, as good of a season as they had last year, maybe to them, that was like this, this was really the last hurrah for Aaron Rodgers. And we just, we just don't have the juice to win it with them. I disagree. And I think I said this on episode one of our podcast, actually. I think I said, if the Packers take Jordan Love, this is going to be a signal of them saying, maybe we can't win it with Aaron Rodgers. I actually, I'm certain I said that. So I kind of nailed this. I don't think you said it on the podcast. I think you said it in one of our side conversations that we have every day because we do I talk said it somewhere. An unhealthy amount. I do recall you talking about Jordan Love to the Packers. Here's my take. I disagree that Rodgers is done. You're, you're kind of framing this as the Packers are done with Aaron Rodgers. You're kind of framing this in the light of, in today's NFL, quarterbacks don't sit on the bench. You see, quarterbacks don't sit on the bench for a prolonged period of time when they're behind quarterbacks like Joe Flacco, you know, <laughs> when they're behind quarterbacks like Alex Smith. Quarterbacks can sit on the bench if they're behind a guy like Aaron Rodgers. And case in point, Aaron Rodgers was drafted to Green Bay, and I'm not going to compare Jordan Love to Aaron Rodgers from a talent aspect. I'm going to compare them from a situation standpoint. Aaron Rodgers was drafted to Green Bay in 2005 when Brett Favre still had four or five good years left. And we saw Brett Favre have four or five more good years. So Jordan Love, we talked about his upside as when all is said and done, Jordan Love and Tua Tagovailoa might have the best careers out of this crop of quarterbacks. And that's you saying that. I don't agree with that. Th that was my take. My, my apologies. No, no responsibility bestowed on Mike Rose for that take. So my take was Jordan Love and Tua Tagovailoa might be the most successful quarterbacks out of this crop in this year's class. For Jordan Love to succeed to the nth degree, the Green Bay Packers are a perfect fit because he gets to learn from one of the all-time greats. When the time is right, he'll slot in if they deem him their next starter. And he's going to have weapons because the Packers, they perpetually have good offensive skill players. So – uh, Jordan Love, for me, I think it's a good. I think it's a good fit, and uh, you're you're licking your chops because you don't think he's that good, and this is in the Vikings division. But objectively, I think that this is 
just about as good a position as Jordan Love could have hoped to be in. You look at Patrick Mahomes excelling after he got to sit behind Alex Smith. Aaron Rodgers excelling after he got to sit behind Brett Favre. Uh, even back when Brady sat behind Drew Bledsoe. If you get high-caliber guys in the same quarterback room and you let one of them sit and develop and mold, in today's NFL, that's not the traditional route, but it has shown that it can work. I'll just say, you know, you talked about, you know, guys sitting behind Alex Smith or Joe Flacco and what have you, but uh, my counterpoint would be, can you find me a quarterback taken in the first round in the last five, even six years that sat for more than one year? Because I don't think you could find a single guy, and I can't think of a single guy off the top of my head. It's just not the way it works anymore. A first-round pick has to come in and make an impact, and maybe it doesn't have to be immediately. It doesn't have to be day one, but they need to make an impact by at least year two. And so I just wonder, you know, I guess the Packers, you know, they, they do run things a little different. For a while, they didn't even sign free agents, and, you know, they did the whole Aaron Rodgers, Brett Favre thing, and maybe they're trying to, you know, catch that magic again but to me this just doesn't if you are gonna hang on to Aaron Rodgers and try and compete for Super Bowls for the next five years that you think Aaron Rodgers has good years left then give him some damn weapons give him an offensive lineman give him take a a corner take anything that's going to help Aaron Rodgers (laughs) with some damn football games instead of taking his backup quarterback that you're gonna sit on the bench for five years I just think that's ridiculous I think Love, his window on the bench is going to be two to three years if they decide he's the future, not five. But I agree with you. It doesn't help them at all in the short term. What did you do for the next two to three years where Aaron Rodgers is out there running for his life because he's got no linemen and throwing to Devontae Adams and three dudes out of the Green Bay YMCA because you didn't want to draft a damn receiver? (laughs) For my money, Jeff Janis is elite. I mean, Moving who is on. the number two receiver on this team? It's Alan Lazard still, right? Like, Alan yeah. Lazard is the number two it, guy it's on the team. It's going to open up as an open competition between Alan Lazard and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who hasn't shown much through his first couple years. Like, how can you so. possibly, as a front office and a coaching staff, look Aaron Rodgers in the face tomorrow and be like, Aaron, listen, we got this guy Love, and he's going to come be in your backup and have fun throwing to Lazard and, and Valdez-Scantling. Yeah. That's so nuts. That and they didn't me. even, you know, they were talking about signing a tight end this offseason. They didn't even do that. Jimmy Graham's gone. Who's the tight end of this team anymore? Chase, Chase Sternberger. Sternberger. So yep. just think about this. They're going to roll out. These are receivers. Aaron Rodgers going to have to work with Devontae Adams. And then Jay Sternberger, Marquez Belvescan, and Alan Lazard. If they don't draft a receiver in the second round of this draft, they might as well just trade Aaron Rodgers to the goddamn Patriots and let Belichick go win five Super Bowls with Aaron Rodgers because it's just insane. <laughs> we're going to move on. <laughs> I think we just have to move on. Pick 28, Patrick Queen goes to Baltimore. I think it's a good fit. I didn't expect him to be on the board at 28, and that's where he ends up. I think he fills a need that has existed since the Ravens lost C.J. Mosley. By the time the actual draft rolled around, I was on about mock draft 9.0 because I just redid it so many times. And every single time I did one, Patrick Queen ended up to the Ravens. It just seemed like – too good of a fit and it seemed like he was going to fall into that spot just based on where the linebackers were ranked and compared to some of the other players and I think it's just a perfect fit he's going to fit right in understand what I'm saying and I know this might sound a little weird but he just plays like he should play for the Baltimore Ravens he just has that style of play that is just Ravens defense-esque you're being really vague and I know exactly what you're saying I was hoping you would who are you anyway 
we're moving on. I don't I don't have uh, much input. Patrick Queen won the title at LSU. Was a big part of that defense and why they were so successful this year. Uh, we talk a lot about how good Joe Burrow was setting records for that offense, but really that LSU defense was a special unit this year as well. Moving on, last two picks in the first round, Michael. Tell me a little bit about how gladney you are feeling with the Vikings' second pick tonight. I just hate that we talked about you making this pun earlier. I told you not to do it. I told you the Vikings' Twitter account did it, and you still made the pun anyways. It's just unbelievable that you would do this. Uh, But talking about Jeff Gladney, listen, you play in the Big 12 at cornerback and you survive and play at a high level, you're doing something right because no one plays defense in that conference at a high level unless you're really, really good. So Gladney played at TCU – one of the few teams in that conference who rolls out a, a top-tier defense on a regular basis. I'll just tell you, he matched up against C.D. Lamb, and he shut him down in that matchup, TCU and Oklahoma. You're making a face at me right now, Curtis. What's, what's the face? You said TCU regularly has a top-tier defense. TCU regularly is a top-30 defense in the country for probably the last 10 years. Okay, I'm going to look this up. I'm going to fact-check you really quick. I, would, I, I feel pretty confident in that. So – Jeff Gladney, he shut down C.D. Lamb in their matchup last year. He shut down Denzel Mims when they matched up uh, from Baylor, who will be drafted at some point tomorrow. And he's a really talented player who is maybe not the best, you know, in terms of uh, – he's, he's a really good athlete, but he doesn't have all of the, the football skills. He's not the best cover guy at this point. But I think going to play for Mike Zimmer, who is, loves his cornerbacks, it's always a joke. Mike Zimmer always takes a corner in the first round because he pretty much does. But he's very good at dra- drafting and developing defensive backs. I think Gladney will uh, be a perfect guy for Zimmer to come in and mold and turn into a really good player. That's fair. I'm just trying to look at TCU because I'm invested in this. I cannot find where TCU slots is an overall defense. Well, continue, and I will find it for you. TCU this year was 27. 27 great defense. I said top 30. But that, was, that was 2019. And unfortunately yeah, – playing in the Big 12. And, and they stunk this year, for the record. They were 5-7. They and were 5-7. and seven. They were a bad football team. So And they still uh, had a good defense. I, I Gary will, Patterson's a great defensive football coach. I will see the point that TCU can uh, put out a good defensive unit. Finally, me and you both talked – prior to this draft, and we said if the Vikings get Brandon Ayuk and Jeff Gladney, they did a good job. So not only did they get a guy on my board who was higher than Brandon Ayuk and Justin Jefferson, who we didn't expect to be there at 22, they got Gladney, and they got more picks than they previously had, and they had two firsts. So they maintained two firsts. They came away with Gladney, they got Jefferson, and they got more picks for days two and three. I think it was a slam dunk tonight for the Minnesota and Vikings. For the record, I found an article, and it's kind of old. It's from 2011, but TCU at the time had just finished with the top-ranked defense in the country for the third consecutive year at that point. And this statistic here, it is for you, they had finished number one in total defense rankings five times at that point in 2011, which was the most of any program since the NCAA began tracking statistics in 1937. So regularly a top-ranked defense in the country, PCU. So lesson for the listeners at home, this is why stereotypes are garbage because I hear the term Big 12 defense, and I think there are no exceptions to the rule, but clearly TCU is an exception to what is now a very off-brand stereotype. Don't let, you, don't let anybody tell you. The Big 12 the Big plays 12 more defense, defense than a lot of people will ever give it credit for. That's fair enough. We need to move forward. I think it's, I think it's Oklahoma 
that represents the Big 12. Oklahoma and Oklahoma and plays a lot more defense than anybody will give them credit for because they were a top 30 defense in the country this year as well. That's fair enough. Actually, I, I didn't know that. We're using small sample sizes, though. I've seen Oklahoma blow a lot of games in the last five years by letting up 60 points in a game. And it's not so. necessarily their defense is that bad. A lot of those are they're playing teams that are just simply better than them sometimes at the end of the day. That's fair. All right. Well, Last on. name off the board. When we talked about running backs coming off the board in the first round, there was talk of DeAndre Swift. There was talk of Jonathan Taylor. There was talk of J.K. Dobbins. Was there really talk of J.K. Dobbins? A little bit. He was 27 overall on Kuiper's big board. Uh, Which I think is nuts, but and he was wildly successful at OSU. So, you know, the name that didn't come out of our mouths in that discussion at any point in time was Clyde Edwards Elair. And he was somebody who we both kind of thought profile as a day two pick. I, I'm speaking for you, but you can chime in if you disagree. Yeah, I, I definitely viewed him as a day two pick. He goes 32 overall to the Kansas City Chiefs. And the guy is going to be 1.1 on dynasty draft boards come August and September. Yeah, I mean, listen, if Edwards Elair was going to go on day one, this is the only spot that makes any sense because he is, without a question, the best pass-catching running back in this class. And really, he reminds me a ton in this entire process leading up. And for some reason, you know, maybe I should have thought about this when I made this comparison every time I watch him, but he reminded me a lot of Brian Westbrook. And so dummy me at no point figured maybe the Chiefs, who are coached by Andy Reid, who coached Brian Westbrook in Philadelphia, might want another Brian Westbrook on his team. I don't know how I never put that one together in a mock draft of all the mocks I did. But nonetheless, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, not only is he a great pass catcher and a great route runner, and really you can, you can split him out wide, honestly. McCaffrey-esque, he can, he can play in that role. And he's also a very good runner. He's tough to tackle. He's low to the ground. He breaks a lot of tackles. And honestly, a lot of the times when I watched LSU last year, and, you know, you're watching for Joe Burrow, and there were games where Clyde Edwards-Hilaire was the best player on the field for this offense. I think the Chiefs are really happy with the guy they got at 32. They get their starting running back now moving forward, even though Damian Williams almost just won Super Bowl MVP. But I got bad news. They just took a running back in the first round. So Damian Williams is now the backup. And Edward Lair should step right in. And I honestly think at some point in the next couple of years, we'll be talking about Clyde Edward Lair, maybe a thousand yard rushing, thousand yard receiving type season. He could catch a hundred passes at one point in a season, in the NFL. I think he's, he's that good of a pass catching back. I'm not ready to put him in the company of Christian McCaffrey, even on a potential basis regarding a potential 1000 yard receiving and 1000 yard rushing season. However, the comparison you made was absolutely spot on. He's a Brian Westbrook clone, and we know how successful Brian Westbrook was with Andy Reid in Philadelphia. So fantasy footballers out there, Clyde Edwards, Elair, and I'm going to make the proclamation already. In redraft leagues this year, he should be a third-round pick. In dynasty leagues, he's got to be the first name off the board because he landed in a perfect situation and all offseason. Yeah, dynasty rookie drafts, my mistake. Not the whole draft, but – Dynasty rookie drafts, pick round one, pick one, put it on the board. It should be Clyde Edwards Elair. Me and you both kind of had an agreement that any of the top five backs, and that is Jonathan Taylor, in no particular order, Jonathan Taylor, DeAndre Swift, Cam Akers, 
J.K. Dobbins, or Clyde Edwards-Eler, any of those five guys ending up in a Kansas City Chiefs uniform had to be the consensus number one pick in Dynasty Rookie Leagues. Yep, 100%. And, I mean, I tell you how good of a pass-catching back he is, and now he's going to go play with Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey, and they got the whole offense from that, you know, that just won the Super Bowl that we just watched. They're all back. It's just not fair, man. It's just not fair. As a Bills fan, they're on the come-up. We talked about last week how – if the Bills nailed this draft with their, their mid-round picks on day two, that they could potentially be a Super Bowl contender this year. And the AFC just got so much more difficult. Really, that pick makes the Chiefs that much more difficult to beat. And, and the Ravens adding Patty Queen today, which really fills their biggest need. The, the two best teams in the AFC nailed their first pick tonight. Yeah, which brings us to our next topic of discussion. Give me, give me the three worst picks that were made tonight. Three worst picks that are made tonight. Henry Ruggs at pick 12 was absolutely the, the first one that immediately comes to mind. I would say Chase on at number 20 to Jacksonville because I really don't like the guy that much. And Jordan Love at 26. Okay. That's fair. I would say my three worst picks. This is in order. Number one has to be Herbert. Didn't like it. Said I, I said day one I wasn't going to like it. I'm going to stick by it. He's a backwards hat kind of guy. Pick two, shout out John Paul Jones. Pick two that I would put uh, on this kind of list is, is definitely Henry Ruggs. I, I need someone to frame this in a way that makes it digestible and makes it justifiable. And I don't think there is one because Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb were sitting there for the taking. So unless the Raiders called up Jerry Judy and CeeDee Lamb they asked, hey, you want to be an Oakland uh, Las Vegas Raider? And CeeDee Lamb and Jerry Judy both said, fuck no. I was about <laughs> to say, I hope you don't just say no. They had to say, fuck no, for you to not take them. If they just said no, I still would have drafted them. Yeah, so unless you called both of those guys, said, hey, you want to be a Las Vegas Raider, and they looked at the QB room, saw Derek Carr and Marcus Mariota, and for whatever reason said, fuck no, then I don't understand why you take Henry Ruggs there. And I think my third worst pick of the night, eh, there's a couple – the Dolphins at pick 30, not be, not because our buddy Noah is a bad player. And, and I, I could, you know, justify putting Jordan Love here too because it doesn't help Aaron Rodgers at all. But Noah, insert last name, he isn't what the Dolphins need. It's not that he's a bad player, not that he's a bad talent, but much in the same way that Jordan Love isn't helping the Packers out much right out of the gate, Noah – his his Noah insert last name as we'll refer to him affectionately. His role is going to be very limited based on the amount of talent in the Miami cornerback room. So, for my money, the Dolphins should have taken DeAndre Swift. I Lock think it up. That's pretty fair. Although I don't like taking running backs in round one. For my money, they should have taken Xavier McKinney. But this leads me to one question I want to ask you though, Curtis. Who is your favorite player that is still on the board? Oof! You got to come back to me. <laughs> you got to come back to me because there's a couple and McKinney definitely give me your top three. Okay. Your th- you said your three worst picks. Who are your three guys that are on the board still that you like the most right now? Xavier McKinney. He's one. And Antoine Winfield Jr. is another guy, both of the safeties. I was astonished that neither of them came off the board in the first round. And there's a lot of candidates for that third. I, I would say Jonathan Taylor. I think he's going to have the biggest impact on the NFL game, regardless of anybody else and their position. 
but you could also make an argument for DeAndre Swift, maybe Michael Pittman Jr. Uh, but those are my guys. Yeah, I'm going to give you – I'm going to – I like all the guys you said. I'm going to give you three different guys, though. Grant Delpit, who is a guy I'm, I've said all through this entire process, I'm way higher on than the consensus. I think Grant Delpit's a stud. I think that his some of his tape this past year is misleading, and I just think he, if you watch that 2018 film back, the guy looks like a top-five pick. And when you watch some of the 2019 film, you just kind of wonder what happened. And then you find out that he played through an injury all year. And then you wonder how he doesn't it, someone just not want to take a shot at him late in round one. But so Grant Delpit would be my, my first guy, Josh Jones, the offensive tackle who I thought I, I'm really surprised he did not get drafted in the first round, honestly, because especially some of the linemen that did go, uh, I, I liked him better than Austin Jackson. And I also liked him better than Isaiah Wilson. So I'm, I, I like Josh Jones. And then uh, a guy you mentioned, Michael Pittman Jr. Is a guy I am, very high on I think he profiles as a legitimate wide receiver one at the next level and I think he is going to be one of those guys we look back on and there's a bunch of these guys in recent years that wide receiver that gets drafted in the second round and turns into an absolute stud Michael Pittman Jr. is going to be one of those guys yeah and the recent list of guys that have come off the board in round two and have thrived at the wide receiver position I know Two come to mind off rip, and that's Michael Thomas and Devontae Adams, who are both superstar wide receivers. There have I been mean, another one I can think of just that was a rookie last year is AJ Brown, who went in the second round yes. and really put out a phenomenal rookie season for the Titans. Yeah, and right, right there. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You can get wide receiver ones in the NFL out of the second round, and it's been on, it's been on repeat, especially in the last five years. I think a lot of the second round guys have actually had uh, superior impacts to their first round counterparts. And a lot of that is one, I I don't know if I have proof of this, but it seems like the teams that are drafting wide receivers in the first round are typically dysfunctional organizations. The Raiders of the world, the Cowboys of the world, the, it, for the, for the, reference, I mean, is, quite frankly, the Vikings have taken a bunch of wide receivers in the first round that have stunk. Uh, the Redskins, the, the Redskins, Josh Doxson. Josh Doxson immediately comes to my mind. The Bengals with John Ross. The Titans who draft better receivers in the second round than they do the first. So Corey I mean, there's Davis. there's a lot of yeah. yeah. Corey Davis, so, not not great. So for for context, we are recording this at two fifteen in the morning right now. So a little slow with my uh, my off rip. Uh, examples, but I think that there's plenty of talent available tomorrow. Looking ahead, I think we have a unique opportunity because we talked about how deep this draft class is, but round two should be a second round one (laughs) as far as the talent left on the board. And some people might disagree that these guys don't have legitimate first round grades, but off the top of my head, here's who we got left on the board who I think the argument was there for uh, coming off the board in round one. Uh, Xavier McKinney, he's the top guy that comes to mind. DeAndre Swift, if more running backs come off the board. Ross Blacklock, he's a guy that uh, also is part of that TCU defense, uh, which is apparently pretty good. Antoine Winfield Jr., uh, safety, can also play a little bit of nickel corner uh, out of Minnesota. He was somebody I was looking for Minnesota to potentially take when they took Jeff Gladney. T. Higgins, I'm not a fan, but a lot of people had them had him going in first round. The mocks, J.K. Dobbins, Getter Gross Matos, uh, Jonathan Taylor. These are just guys off my mock draft. 
that uh, really were considered for first round picks. And then getting deeper down the board, we have Zach Bond, uh, Josh Jones, who you mentioned, Trayvon Diggs, Michael Pittman Jr., uh, Denzel Mims, and maybe maybe a little bit of Jake Fromm. But uh, no, absolutely not Jake Fromm. <laughs> but we we there's a lot, and that's not even you know doing justice to the amount of guys that were considered as potential first round picks in this absolutely stacked draft class. So for if you're someone who just watches the first round of the NFL draft and then turns it off because the talent pool decreases, do not do that this year because Friday and Saturday of the NFL draft are going to be absolutely critical based on how deep this class is. Yeah, and I do want to say it's a really deep class with a lot of good players. I don't want to call them all first-round players because I like to think a first-round player is an instant impact type guy. I don't know that there's, you know, I would call these guys instant impact, but I think there's a lot of good quality players in this draft. It's incredibly deep, and I think as deep as round four and five, you can get quality players in your building. But, you know, you're calling them, you know, a second first round. I wouldn't go quite that far personally, but a lot of good players in this draft and a really deep draft. Um, I do just want to note, we were talking about second-round wide receivers. I just want to give you a quick list of second-round wide receivers because I have it in front of me. Since 2014, who are absolutely uh, very successful, you can't really even argue it. So Jarvis Landry, Allen Robinson, Devontae Adams. Uh, 2015 was an absolute dumpster fire for wide receivers, so just pretend it never happened. Michael Thomas, Tyler Boyd. Juju Smith-Schuster, Cortland Sutton, and then going back to last year, uh, we had A.J. Brown and Debo Samuel. So, second-round wide receivers are real. And in this year's draft class, I'm just going to be honest, third-round wide receivers and fourth-round wide receivers, you're going to find some guys who are the real deal. Yeah, and this year's wide receiver crop is super interesting because we had the guys come off the board tonight uh, in the first round at the wide receiver position. There was five... We had Ayuk. There were six. Uh, Ayuk, Rieger, um, yeah, the Vikings Lynch. take, Justin Jefferson, Justin Jefferson, Lamb, Judy, Ruggs. Yeah, so we had six come off the board in the first round tonight. Tomorrow, rounds two and three, here's who I expect to come off the board. T. Higgins, not that high on him. We got to see him create separation at the next level uh, to be convinced that he's going to excel. But he's a big body, really good after the catch. Uh, pretty sure hands during his time at Clemson. Again, the program he was in with Trevor Lawrence throwing him the football may have boosted his draft stock beyond what he should actually be considered as a draft prospect. Michael Pittman Jr. is someone I think we both agree on. Could be very good. Denzel Mims, uh, LaVisca Chenault. I had a first-round grade uh, on LaVisca Chenault. He, due to some injury concerns, he might fall to the third round. Uh, Chase Claypool. He's a wide receiver tight end hybrid who a lot of people are fascinated by the athleticism he puts on display. And then even moving down the board a little more, you got guys like, you know, Devin Duvernay and uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones who really in past years would be in that second round discussion that are going to get pushed to the third and fourth rounds of the wide receiver position. Yeah, and there's a lot of guys that uh, I'm really interested in that are going to be gone in these next couple of days, but we will dive into more of those guys on the next episode of the podcast where we wrap up the rest of this NFL draft. Yeah, but I think that just about does it for this episode. Re- real quick, we're getting close. We're getting close to the end. Real quick, we need three teams tonight that you think won round one and three teams that you think could have done a better job. Three teams that could have done a better job. The Dolphins, the Bengals, the Chargers all could have done a better job. They had multiple whoa, whoa, whoa. picks. The Bengals did not have multiple picks. 
not the Bengals, the Dolphins, the Chargers, the Jaguars. My apology. Yes. I got my my you know Bengals, Jaguars, got them confused. Um, but those three teams had multiple first round picks, and I was not uh, enthralled with the prospects they went ahead and grabbed uh, in the spots they did. Teams that I think did a great job. I got to pick three of them, huh? Yes. I mean, I would go with the Vikings for one. I was really happy with what they did. I think the I think the Lions, because I, I'm just that high on Jeffrey Okuda. They didn't overthink it. Get Jeffrey Okuda. He's an absolute stud. And I would say the same thing with the Cardinals. Isaiah Simmons, guy's a stud. He fell into your lap. Don't overthink it. I tweeted about this earlier. The teams that do the best in the NFL draft are the teams that don't overthink this thing. The Oakland Raiders like to overthink this thing every year, and they end up taking a bunch of random guys that no one even had on their board in the first round, and it makes no sense. Arizona Cardinals and the Detroit Lions tonight, they looked at the board. They said, these guys are studs. Let's take them. Keep it pushing. Yeah, and I got three winners for you. Um, one, I agree with you on the Vikings. So, Skull did the clap for you. Uh, Minnesota, really, as many needs as they have to fill tonight. They got Jefferson. They got Gladney. Two guys who should be instant impact guys in Minnesota. And moving forward, they accrued more picks. I think they're second now. Only the Miami Dolphins have more picks in this draft, which is going to be a really key thing for a Vikings roster with a lot of holes and not a lot of cap space. So they can bring in guys on rookie contracts and plug and play them where needed. And I think also that's going to – I want to put it on the record. I'm fingers crossed they got a lot of draft picks. And if they, they have a way to make the cap work, it is possible. I'm looking at you, Washington, Trent Williams – could come right in and be a great Minnesota Viking, and I never have to watch Riley Reef try and pretend like he's an NFL off tackle ever again because he's not. So please, Rick Spielman, if you're out there and you stumble upon this podcast, please trade for Trent Williams. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll put that in Mike, William, uh, Mike Rose's will. Please trade for Trent Williams. For me, the other teams that won tonight, San Francisco. I mean, they got Javon Kinlaw who we didn't talk about in excruciating detail, kind of because he went between the run on tackles, which was super interesting, and the massive wide receivers. So Javon Kinlaw was a sneaky good pick. And he's, as you mentioned, DeForest Buckner, about $20 million less. Uh, he's not the most talked about. He went to South Carolina, obviously not a pristine program at the Division One level, but Javon Kinlaw is going to make an impact in San Francisco this year, and so is Brandon Ayuk. So San Francisco... Again, you're talking about teams that don't overthink this thing. They definitely knocked out of the park. And I think Kansas City, and you can take the stand that running backs shouldn't be taken in the first round. But this was such an interesting pick. I will take that pick. stand. It, that's, that's fine. This was such an interesting pick because of how perfectly it fits the scheme that I can't be mad about it. He, in Clyde edwards Elair doesn't have a lot of tread on his tires. He's shown he can play, play at a high level, play on a national championship stage. And he's a Brian Westbrook cutout. And Andy Reid knows how to use guys like that. We've seen Kareem Hunt do the same thing. And when Kareem Hunt bust out against the New England Patriots for multiple touchdowns and 200 yards in his first game, we said, holy shit, did they get this right? And <laughs> I, I think we're going to have a moment with Clyde Edwards-Elair this year that is of the same brand with holy shit did they get this pick right Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is going to have a game this year where he puts up like 250 combined rushing receiving yards and scores like three touchdowns and Mahomes is going to be dancing on the sideline they're going to win like 49 to 21 against somebody and we're like you said we're just going to be like wow what 
what were we even thinking, questioning, you know, even even thinking, oh, take a different running back because this guy's just perfect for what the Chiefs want to do. Yeah, and in that time, I'm going to let you die on the hill that you shouldn't take running backs in the first round. I think my stance is that you shouldn't give running backs a massive encroaching on a $100 million contract because we've seen – well, I don't really think you should do either. <laughs> and that's fine. I, I, honestly, I'm just in the camp of fuck your running back. Like, seriously. Like, there's just no reason <laughs> to put big-time capital into a running back. It makes no sense. You can I sent this in our, our Dynasty football group chat the other day, the list of the leading rushers on every team that's won a Super Bowl since, like, 2010. And it's a, it's a joke of a list. The best running back on the list is, like, Ray Rice. It's just insane. Running backs do not lead to Super Bowl titles and I will die on the hill that just to you not ever need a running back. Like just that. to fact check that list, Marshawn Lynch was also on that list. So Marshawn Lynch, I, I would rank Marshawn Lynch and Ray Rice are the two best so, running backs. Yeah, but those two guys, it was a group like Damian Williams and uh, Garrett Blunt. Garrett Blunt was on the list. CJ uh, Anderson, I, or was it Ronnie Hillman? Whichever one of those bums led the Broncos in rushing that year. It's just insane. Yeah, it was like uh uh, Jay Ajayi or a Wendell Smallwood from the Eagles championship. Like, yeah, just we, give me a break. Yeah. So <laughs> with your I, I do think, however, when Clyde Edwards Elair is winning Mike Rose, a fantasy football championship in the future, it's going to be great to say and anything bad about, but you know Clyde what? Edwards-Elair. Five years from now when Clyde Edwards Elair's contracts up, the chiefs better not pay him. Cause it'd be stupid. I don't, I don't care if he turns out five years of 2,000 total yards of offense, I wouldn't pay the guy. Yeah, that's fair. Um, that about does it for me, Michael. Uh, is there anything uh, you want to add before we wrap up this this NFL draft round one recap? We ran really long. And I, I mean, just... we knew this was going to happen. Honestly, it was a great decision to post episode two as episode two because if we combined episode two with this episode, it would have been like three days. It just would have been insanely long. So probably a good decision on our part to separate the two. And my my last thoughts on it is the virtual draft was, as much as I'm, I would like the old draft to come back, the virtual draft went very quick, and I kind of liked that. Yeah. I think tonight went smooth. I think we had a lot of uh, really good content as far as the overall production and uh, the the typical groups from ESPN and NFL coming together and doing a good job of broadcasting in definitely less than ideal circumstances. So shout out to ESPN and NFL Network for doing a good job tonight with bringing us NFL draft coverage. And I think they're going to do the same over the next couple of days and they're going to bring in, I'm very interested to see what the ratings come out to be tomorrow. When we're going to be nuts. It, listen, we saw the ratings on the Jordan doc. This is, the, I mean, that's something that already happened 20 years ago. This is happening right now. These ratings are going to be absolutely nuts. Yeah, couldn't agree. Couldn't agree anymore. And uh, that about does it for us. As always, give us a follow on Twitter if you don't do so already at guys like sports underscore. We're on Instagram at guys like sports. And uh, yeah, any parting words, Michael? Uh, we appreciate all the support. We've gotten lots of kind words from people listening to the podcast first two episodes. So we definitely appreciate that. And like Curtis said, follow us on the social medias. And uh, I'm going to parse today with a skull because I'm real happy with the Vikings draft. As the uh, resident to keep the peace in the equilibrium of this podcast, I need to remind Michael of two words. Big trust. You don't have anything? I thought we were going to end it right there. That was like a perfect way to end it. Big trust. Hit the music. Thank you.